we've done a number of um, podcasts around, uh, and some go on my personal YouTube and some go on LPP. We did one recently for my personal podcast called To Tell the Truth, because we are philosophically and morally concerned with people lying, as in, you know, Russia claiming they're invading the Ukraine to save the Ukrainians from Nazis, as in the election denial. And we took some specific examples. Um, I mean, Bernie Madoff was first, somebody who stole a lot of money from people. And um, we talk also about the person who finally blew the whistle on him was a man named Harry Mercopolis. And he was just one individual who stood up to Madoff, even at the same time, the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, whose job it is to monitor these things, failed to do it. Um, And then its second gigantic topic is Elizabeth Holmes. Just in March, she was convicted of wire fraud for misrepresenting data, inducing people over mail and wire to invest in her firm. They didn't get, she's convicted of criminal fraud. So Elizabeth Holmes, who was the fair child of the biggest investors and political figures in America, uh, Mayor Dog Mattis and uh, George Schultz, former Secretary of State, and Henry Kissinger, she's going to prison. And Although they, the patients who were misled by her, that those fraud charges weren't criminally realized, they're suing her. So there's a series called that's been dropped. It's in the fourth episode called The Dropout. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So we've gone from those are economic ripoffs in one form or another. We've discussed on LPP the Tinder swindler, which is a, who's a man who lines up a series of women, induces them into relationships, and, you know, steals from them. Then we talked about Sweet Bobby, and what was remarkable about that was a woman, a sensible, capable woman, had a 10-year relationship with a person she was never alone in a room with. And it was the rest that Bobby's a person, but somebody impersonated Bobby and confiscated her life for 10 years. So what all of those things have in common so far is that you can look at all those incidents, whether economic or whether um, involved in fraudulent escapades and relationships and things like that. And if you take a 30,000 foot view or have the benefit of hindsight, you can say, how in the world would anybody be bamboozled by these wacky stories? And those people we've found, I think we've landed on, felt like they had to believe that because the essence of the stories gave them some sort of proxy for purpose in life. And they're very difficult to call these stories. But one thing that comes up, um, 
there's a fifth series that I've watched in its entirety called The Bad Vegan. And what the, the Bad Vegan, can all of these stories, four of the five involve love. So now we get into the series The Bad Vegan. And she's a person who's most, um, she had, she had, she invented high-end veganism in New York City. She had a going business. She had a very, she worked nonstop. I'm going to jump out now and say, there is one characteristic that Elizabeth Holmes and Sarma Mongolis had in common. They were, they were attractive, extremely smart, isolated people. You would look at them and say, well, they must have been stars in high school. Look at them. They're attractive. <clears throat> They're brilliant. They must have been beloved. But that wasn't true in either case. Now, that obviously, I'm not going to say isolated people become involved in either addictive relationships or rip people off. I'm not going to possibly say that. But it is no, there is a parallel that strikes out in both of these shows. So for some crazy reason, Sarma Melgalis marries a small-time hood, a guy who's been in prison, and now he's latched on to her. Um, and he drained the, um, the, the, the series... The Bad Vegan. And of course, I don't like that title and I don't like the dropout title. People can drop out. That doesn't make them do what Elizabeth Holmes do. And, you know, Bad Vegan, it's a play on words because they claim when they got, they go in the lamb and she gets caught for ordering a pizza. She never, she never eats that food. She married, she married a man who went from being overweight to being obese and he had an explanation for her, which is all of this is very reminiscent of the Tinder swindler. He said, oh, it's part of my being an undercover agent. I have to become obese. He weighed over 300 pounds by the end. And she, if there's one thing that's core to her, she's to say she's thin by the end doesn't describe it. She's like evaporated. She went and she went to prison for a brief time. <laughs> He was, he received some kind of a sentence, but he served it. Well, you know, he, he was out before her and they, um, they play and they went on the lamb. A woman who was running a high end restaurant and they listed all the famous people that came in. She was writing cookbooks. Um, she was a seminal figure in American diet. And she ended up on, it's impossible, on the lamb, running from the authorities because her boyfriend is ripping, and among the people her boyfriend rips off is her mother. Hmm. $400,000. Her mother, like, had to move. And you're, <clears throat> the question becomes, how could some, she was devoted to the business, 
to convincing people about the value of this new kind of diet. And she ended up turning herself over to this man, ripping, ripping what they say she ripped off $6 million. She owed taxes. She's extremely close to her workers. She stopped paying them. For God's sake, her boyfriend, her husband ripped off her mother. And her explanation, both she and Elizabeth Holmes claim, used the word love early on. And then specifically, Melangelis says she was brainwashed. So I could have written a book, instead of love and addiction, I could have written love and brainwashing because you're how is she and they're on the road living in single rooms and motels how did that happen and they they make no money so i just afterwards she's out of prison and this is her explanation there was no actual gun to my head so it'll be said that, of course, I had a choice. I get that. However, the response that I must be crazy and or stupid, and we did this, you know, with the sweet Bobby. How do we understand how a person does this? I'm not stupid and I'm not crazy. That's what she says, and that's... I am humiliated and shamed by all the damage caused, but I've been working to rebuild a strong foundation of self-reliance and self-awareness. Let's hope so. Obviously, I'd be reluctant to invest money in her. She now claims she got paid by Netflix. You're not supposed to get paid for doing a documentary, and she claims that she used the money to pay back her employees. I don't know the truth of that. So I want to ask, based on these stories... I want to take up two topics that I think have a practical application. Um, and one's a little bit mechanical. How not to be duped. What are banned signs if somebody you run into on the internet? And some of them are extremely obvious. When the guy you're dating has no visible means of support, he's often absent. And he claims that he's in the Secret Service or the CIA or the FBI. Um, that's not going to be true. And then the second thing that happens is he asks for money, which hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in several of these cases. But um, the bad vegan made tapes, and this is how it works. And this is the same thing. Um, that the Tinder swindler did. He says, wire me $50,000. And he's already out hundreds of thousand dollars to the person. And if she says, well, what about, weren't you going to pay me back the hundreds of thousands already? He says, are we at that point in your relationship? Do you not trust me? In other words, they have this thing and it's a sign of their love and trust 
that she's going to give him the money without questioning it. Of course, again, Elizabeth Holmes isn't like that. Elizabeth Holmes is going out. She's the money person. She goes out and gets money while Ian Gibbons and even sometimes her boyfriend says, you know, we got a little bit of a problem here. We're, you know, bringing these machines into Walgreens. The scenes don't work. So we, we um, th- that dynamic, can you imagine a coaching issue, how you would coach somebody in a dynamic like that? If they're saying, well, he's asking me for money. Have you ever seen a situation like that where somebody's being crushed emotionally and giving, well, we, we've certainly seen that where people are crushed emotionally and they're giving up important parts of themselves. That we've seen. How do you break out of that dynamic? Let's scale it down. Good idea. Something, if people don't know, I work with kids all the time. Now I work with pretty young kids at elementary school level. So I want to make a, an analogy. So in the, you talked about the bad vegan or any sort of, any of those scenarios where love comes in, an idea of love comes into play. There's something more fundamental going on than, hey, stupid, can't you see he's ripping you off for money? Because the can't you see he's ripping you off for money, that I imagine is a fleeting thought in a person's mind. But why, the question is, why overlook it? Or why try to um, wrap that into a narrative that you need to... Right. And, you know, love, you can believe, and I, I believe it, is an essential feature of human life. So if there's an idea that this is love, and I, this is something you talk about in love and addiction in various places. If you think this weird relationship is love, or if you're missing some element of love in your life and you think this is the only shot you have at it, then you're going to think, well, I need to preserve this because love is essential. This is love. This must be preserved at all costs. Because this is getting down into the addiction part. Right. When people take heroin, they don't think this is their whole chance at life. And I do think this does relate back to the fact that she and Elizabeth Holmes were isolated people growing up. That that it's it's something they're grabbing onto. <clears throat> so I see this a lot in kids who are developing an identity because there are certain features of their lives too that they feel are essential. And sometimes adults look at things kids think are essential or want to be essential and they think, well, that's just so trivial. And actually one of my favorite colleagues is a, is a school counselor who really takes seriously these like little um, things on the rumor mill with these fifth grade girls. And she, every time someone gets their feelings hurt, she takes it very seriously. She takes it as though she talks to them as though it's just as existential as they're making it sound because then she's able to reflect and say, are there other times in your life that you felt that this essential thing um, was going well? And tell me about that and tell me your place in that. And what decisions did you make going up to it? And then on the other hand, are there other times in life where you feel like these essential things to you have been threatened or that 
have you ever seen this happen to a friend? And what would you tell a friend in your position? Um, what do you think they should do? What I'm saying is sometimes you have to give people a way to look and one hand step out of themselves in this framework that they're in and think about truth in a different way. It's a softer way to do it because you can think about maybe how you would respond to others. And then also get back into yourself and say, hey, don't you remember the time you A, B, and C? Because you have the, now you have the capacity to build up these things that you want. If that makes One sense. of the things you would have done to the vegan is to say, tell me about why you were so concerned about getting people to eat this food. You know, it saves the planet. <clears throat> Get her mind back in that division of her brain. And I can even imagine saying um, she could respond and saying, you know, a million things. This is it is important to me, and this is um, this is what love is, or this is a purpose. And and then you could reflect some of the things that she told you. Oh, on the lamb stolen from your mother. Do you think that gives you a purpose? Does any do any of these things oppose your idea of what it means to be purposeful in life? And how so? You know, get get her to articulate it herself. Now, another ingredient in all of this is that the guy isolates the person from their family and friends because <clears throat> right. he's stealing from her family. This petty criminal with the vegan, he kept up some kind of relationship with her mother and father. He was, uh, off, they often have skills, petty hoodlum skills or the swindler <clears throat> is so persuasive. And ironically, in the Elizabeth Holmes case, where she's not the victim, she has those skills too. They can bore into people and pull them towards them. They, that's a gift that they found they had, which they turn out to be using, you know, in a non-productive way. And so, obviously, uh, anytime you're in a relationship where a person is intentionally cutting you off from your family and people that are close to you, Obviously, to the extent that you want to be a helper, you want to keep those connections going and you want that person, you know, it's never this simple, but you want that person to say, what would your mother think about this? Mm -hmm. Have you spoken to your mother about this or your sister or whoever's really important to you? In the vegan, they interview, she's very close to her sister and they interview her uh, parents. And, you know, you can't cast shade on anybody. You wonder, you know, she's on the lam with a psychopath and nobody can get in touch with her. That's getting pretty close to he could have murdered her. And, you know what I mean? You're, you're now in alarming territory. And that gets into a family systems realm. I mean, now, and really, we could extrapolate this to any sort of a problem. You, somebody who's addicted to whatever, someone who has this relationship with heroin and feels like it gives them some sort of solace or relief or whatever it is that they can't get anywhere else. And now they're, they've already isolated themselves because this is, this doesn't jive with their, what their family's values are, their friends' values are. A person like that, I should know, could get into a position where they feel, well, I've sort of gotten myself in this hole and I don't want to talk to anybody. Where would I even start a conversation like that? So, you know, you want to empower a person to be able to think about how you might reach out to your their community, their circle of 
you know, social involvements. And on the other hand, if it's possible, you might try to get people who are associated with them to reach out to them in a way that extends an olive branch rather than uh, has them recoiling. And one of the things you would want to do with the person is to persuade them or make them aware that however bad things have gotten between them and the ones they care about, ignoring that is going to go in a help further in the handbasket to hell mm. that getting it out somewhere on the surface is going to be their best way. If they're shamed and embarrassed to address that shame and embarrassment. And of course, hopefully it would pull them back from. The- yeah, and I'll, add, I'll add one thing to that is that um, I've had success. Right. You so you want to get people to a place where they understand that you think you're at the deepest depths of despair right now, but continuing to isolate yourself will make things get worse. Not even giving a shot at, you know, trying to connect with people is, is bad. But then you want to offer some way to show or for them to show themselves in some sort of good faith that why don't you give it a try, you know, stick your toe in the pool and watch that be successful. And it can be so minor. It can be sending a text to your mother or something like that and watch something unfold that's positive or at least not horrible so that they can get on track with actually making the connections. Yes. <clears throat> it's never as, as confronting something is never as bad as you imagine it to be. And as things are going to get to be, if you don't right. confront them, I, this is a little bit of a sideline, but Steve Slate worked with a group of people and they're, clinical chief, and Steve Slate was a heroin guy. He went to rehab, and he told, this guy's famous, this clinical director, and I hired him for my place eventually, but I can't get into that too much. Mm-hmm. And Steve, he, he's not a panic guy. Steve Slate said, well, when I get out of here, you know, I'm going to go back to heroin. <laughs> and the guy said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he said something like, I don't know, why don't you try not doing heroin for a month? Just see what that feels like, kind of like an experiment. And, you know, it's a reasonable request. (laughs) Just try it. You know, I'm not saying the heroin's bad or you'll be re-addicted. I'm just saying, you know, let's, uh, you're open-minded. He's a brilliant man. Let's do an experiment and just, you know, tell me what it's like. And, you know, it turned out to be better for Steve Slate than doing heroin, you know. Hmm. <clears throat> and he could have made any sort of discovery in that in that month or even a week of trying for a month. I mean, he could have uh, he may have observed that there's a time and a place for heroin um, and it's not all bad. Or he might have found that uh, he could do it as long as he's open with other people or something. You know, it just happened for him that not doing it. He's making it a variable that he's controlling in his life, which is hard enough. If you're doing it less badly than you used to do it, that's a positive thing. Hmm. So we're talking about, you know, we're imagining having one of these people as a client, which is cheap thrills. I mean, we, we don't know what they went through. We don't can't prove that we would have been helpful. But people perhaps watching this, will say, well, I got a friend in a situation somewhat like that. It's unlikely they're going to make a Netflix series or a HMO 
or a um, um, HBO series out of it. But, you know, I know people like that. And so hopefully we can backtrack from that, both so that people can perhaps be more self-aware, but also that we can be helpful helpers. So let me jump to another topic. And this is a topic we bring up in our book, Outgrowing Addiction. I bring it up in my book, um, um, Addiction Proof Your Child, Values. Hmm. Well, it's a touchy subject because, you know, the vegan woman is saying, well, she, she's saying I'm not crazy and I'm not stupid. But she's violating her values. She's ripping off her mother. She's ripping off employees who came with her to set up a, you know, a top flight restaurant. And, you know, they had to work really, everybody had to work really hard. And they were all committed because it's the kind of thing where they believed in the the diet that she was presenting. And so we bring up values. How, how, what are... And no, no, I mean, we're looking at the tail end of all these situations. We're looking at people that went to prison and in some cases died. Um, um, like Ian Gibbons, although he's a total pawn. I mean, he got a job as a biochemist. <clears throat> um, what sorts of things, none of us wants our children to be on the lamb being pursued by federal authorities with a guy who might do anything, who, how do you know what he's going to do with your child and how do you raise a child in that manner? And I'm just going to throw something out here that you, every one of these things brings it to mind. One of the values that we talk about is the value towards money, which people are, you know, sort of like, what are you economic advisors or psychologists? Um, the vegan was ripping off. They weren't paying their employees. She was ripping off her mother. She was ripping off investors like Elizabeth Holmes was. Elizabeth Holmes was burning through money. <clears throat> um, and the vegan, you know, during before they went on the lamb, they would go to a hotel and they'd stay in the best hotel in Europe when they were going because she's giving him hundreds of thousands of dollars and he's spending it. Understanding the value of money is a remarkably important ingredient to avoiding these things and other kinds of scams and addictions. You know, you have to ask yourself, am I really going to spend this money gambling? You know, people go in and they lose some money gambling and some people say, that's it. I just can't do that. And some people don't say that. And when you frame that as an addiction, you say, well, they can't control themselves. But another way to think about it is how important are these values? How important are the values to home, homes and to the vegan, you know, not to rip people off? You're going to get accused of something here. And you've been accused of it before. You're going to be accused of saying of you have values and you're telling people that they should value things also. And so another way of saying that so that it's clear, so that it's clear for anyone who's skeptical here, there's um, money is going to have an impact on your life one way or another. 
So I guess what you're saying is you have to consider the impact that money, that your financials, money in general is going to have on your life and also the lives of others. And then you can foresee the decisions you make. If they have financial consequences, you can sort of look ahead and say, what are these, what would these consequences be financially? And if you've already done, have the forethought and sort of the, the practice in casting your attention on certain values, then you can say, oh no, if I do this, this is going to impact somebody financially and that's going to intersect in a bad way with my other values. I would take it even a step deeper and say, thinking of yourself as a parent or a mentor, Mm. holding people accountable for financial things. And, you know, bringing it, you know, they can only buy things when they have enough money to afford them. That's Mm. one thing. Um, Making them work to earn their money. Um, Making them aware of debts that they've incurred and telling them you can't buy something until you pay back your grandmother or your friend that you borrowed money for. I mean, these are such basic fundamental things. And, you know, maybe they seem pretty far from addiction, love, and, you know, going to prison. But establishing the importance of your financial integrity, that's a value that will serve you in good stead or your children or your loved ones in good stead in every area of your life. Getting into that practice, I think that understanding those values and having practice and working out the details of those things, like you said, just having practice, understanding what it means to be in debt, and then how you need to prioritize if you are, how you're going to handle your current financial situation. Are you going to go get yourself in another debt, or is it essential that you pay back a debt? I think that usurps a lot of the trouble that people get in otherwise. I really do. I agree with you. Um, it would have served me if I was looking back, and it does now, <laughs> to even if I was getting myself in tons of trouble in other areas of my life, if I had good practice managing my money, but not only managing my money, but seeing how my management of my money affects my life, then I could have, I probably could have really much quicker curbed my enthusiasm for heroin and the destruction that it caused in my life. It's almost as though your recovery was a recovery of balancing your budget. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Heroin. Okay. But you went from, you know, needing money and obtaining it in not entirely scrupulous ways to, you know, making a living and realizing that you have to live within that. Right. And, you know, it's a funny kind of, I mean, they actually have groups like that, you know, debtors anonymous, they do have that, but we're saying that that kind of, and so, and you're an example of somebody who had an underlying sense of value. You didn't want to rip people off. You wanted to be fair. You wanted to have integrity but you had to relaunch those values and, you know, you had to harness yourself into them and including like, well, what kind of a job can I get with my skills where I actually have an income 
to be, you know, half of the balance sheet. Because if you don't believe that, which gets back to some other things about raising children, making them care for themselves, giving them skills, giving them practice on financial independence, um, rewarding them when they come up with ideas for making money. Um, I have a um, print in my bathroom that I really admired. And the way I got it was, I like to tell too many stories about my children, was my daughter came home one day and said she had an idea. And the idea was people uh, wore out their jeans and their knees, but the top part of their blue jeans remained intact. And she had an idea for making pocketbooks or purses out of them. And it so happens that my wife has those skills. Mm. And my daughter didn't. And my wife taught her how to make them. And she went in Morristown. There was a consignment house. And she started selling these jean pocketbooks in the consignment house. And then I said, oh, I really admire that print which i saw there and she was able to trade off you know make some kind of deal with the owner where she was selling her things to get that for me as a present <laughs> and you know she went through all of this she was still in school you know in high school for god's sake and it was one of the times that i could look at all of my children and go without you know I, i'm not going to say oh that's great you did but, but, but i say I would just look at them and say, and say at her and said, you're going to be all right. Mm. She could put all of that together. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm, you're, I mean, we didn't need her to pay the rent. So we weren't putting that much of a financial burden on her. But we were not only expecting her to pay her debts, but we were rewarding her for being creative and earning money and using her brains and creativity to do that. I'm going to tell you a, a very quick story and I can, we can then wrap this up. Uh, I hadn't told you this before, but I told my wife and then she said, well, you got to tell Stanton. I don't think it's funny. Uh, you, when you visited Vermont, the fir- uh, when we met the first time in person, we, uh, I drove you up to a bus station so that you and uh, your grandson could take that bus home and, so it was like an hour or so drive to different state to pick it up. You had bought us all dinner the night before. And so I thought, well, we're going to go to this place. We'll stop at a restaurant and I'll buy lunch for Stanton and his grandson. But I've, we had ordered all this food and I ordered drinks. And I, re- I reached into my pockets and realized I forgot my wallet. And uh, actually, it was <laughs> your grandson who said, well, who's paying for this one? And I looked up. And he said, I, you would just happen to say, well, I've got it. So I was already thinking, I was never going to tell you. But years, a couple of years later, now I'm visiting New York, and you and I and a colleague and friend of ours, Sean, went out. And it was on my mind still. So I said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pay for this one. It doesn't matter. That's going overboard. I'm not telling people to keep track of every, you know, debt in your relationship. But it goes to show a difference in my thinking that it matters to me and the relationships that I have and people that I care about that I would want to make sure that I'm pulling my weight. Balance of an equity scale in your mind. You know what I mean? Not like you're doing, but you want relationships 
close to you to be fair. That's it. So that obviously applies to me and coworkers, and obviously it applies even with your, um, you know, those your wife and daughter and other those in your family. You might have a last thing. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, you go on. Uh, you you may have a last thing to say here, but my final word. I liked what you said that um, in all of these scenarios and any involvement in any relationship, what you want to do to get yourself out of at some point some destructive areas of your life is make the object of your addiction or this destruction. I think you said just make it a variable that you can control rather than having it seem like the essence of your life that you have to perpetuate. And we're switching to values. I mean, heroin is heroin. It's just sitting there, you know, and whatever, but values are you're enacting on the world. It's an active, it's not a passive relationship. It's, it's something, you know, you should know you can control a value driven life. Hmm. So what we've tried to do uh, in our time today is to jump from, there's an incredible number of these cases on, people are fascinated by them. The Holmes case, the woman who ripped people off in New York, was that listening to Amy? I don't know. They're all bestsellers, you know, the swindler one. So this vegan one I hadn't even known about, and I'm just watching it. There are all these cases that tie together intimacy, getting people believing lies, people perpetrating frauds, crime and money. It's uh, maybe uh, I haven't been paying attention, but it's a constant flood of things that are coming across in the media. So we're trying to break it down to bankable, manageable items in terms of living your own life with integrity and possibly how it can impact rearing your children. We'll sign off on that. Thank you, Stanton.